discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. I'm your host, Mexi, and today we have the insightful and incredible Dr. Kristen Godsey on the show. She has written innumerable books, but you have likely heard of her as the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, which is a must-read in my humble opinion. She also has a new book out this year called Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women, another very important one, and she has discussed this book in detail on Rev Left Radio, which I've linked in the show notes. But today we're going to dig into the commodification of relationships and sex under capitalism and patriarchy, the history of this, the political and personal and interpersonal implications of this, and drawing from insights from Alexandra Kollontai, how we can work to decommodify our relationships and work towards a liberated future. As many of you know, and if you don't know, I co-host a monthly sex stream on YouTube called A Little to the Left, wink wink, with my co-hosts Nicole from Pink Spots and Catherine from the Catherine YouTube channel. And we talk about relationships, sex, and sexual politics from a deeply socialist, feminist, and queer perspective. So this conversation is right up our alley. I think that along with changing the material conditions of our society, we have a lot of work to do internally to unlearn a lot of the very toxic, patriarchal, and capitalist ways we've been taught to relate to ourselves and to others, and you know how critical I think it is to undo the long, long legacy of patriarchal trauma. So I love this conversation. I hope you all do too, or at least take a lot from it. I want to state from the outset that this can be a fairly binary conversation throughout many parts of it, and that is because we are talking primarily about heterosexual relationships and the history of the institutionalization of monogamous marriage and just enforced cis-heteropatriarchy. So it can be fairly binary at times. I do apologize for that, but I do still think it is a very important conversation. And again, just one that I hope that you take a lot from. If you like this show and want to help keep it going and growing, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash total liberation. You can join our bi-monthly community calls on Discord, which are always rad, always lovely, and everyone in there is nice and good and comradely. It is a beautiful reprieve from the stinking trash fire that is the rest of the internet. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show. It means the world, and it is so incredibly helpful. So with that, let's dive into the interview. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I'm an author and a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I've spent most of the last 25 years doing research in and writing about the situation of 
post-socialist transition in Eastern Europe. So basically what happened to ordinary people when the Berlin Wall collapsed and the Soviet Union ceased to exist and the sort of aftermath of the transition or the transformation from socialism or what was then called really existing socialism to what was supposed to be democracy, but ended up being some kind of crazy kleptocapitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And you've written several books, right? So today we're going to talk about one in particular, but you were just on an excellent episode of Rev Left Radio talking about your new book, Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women. So I will link to uh, the book and that episode below for anyone looking to check it out. But um, yeah, would you like to just talk a bit about some of the work you've put out? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so... (laughs) I've actually, um, I've just submitted the manuscript for my 12th book. Um, wow. I, yeah, I, yeah. And so prior to the book that I think you're referring to, which is why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence, which initially came out in 2018, I'd actually written, you know, nine other books, um, but they were all academic books. And so very few people actually read them, <laughs> um, which is the nature of, of academic writing, unfortunately. So But after 2018, uh, particularly in the United States with the after the election of President Donald Trump, I took a slight turn in my focus and I decided that instead of really speaking to just my academic colleagues, uh, I would try to more broadly address the general public about some of the things that I've been thinking and writing about. And so I published uh, Why Women Have Better Sex in Our Socialism in 2018. Red Valkyries came out this summer um, in July, I believe. And I have another trade book that's going to be coming out next year in May of 23. So I'm doing a little bit more of this kind of what we call in academia public facing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those books were absolutely excellent. And uh, I just feel that completely. I really think that this public facing work is so important. That's actually partly why I started the YouTube channel and the podcast, because as you said, a lot of these academic works just do not reach the amount of people that they likely should. So so that's excellent. And I know that we're going to talk a bit about Colin Tai today and her insights around the commodification of relationships in particular, but certainly the insights of all the women you write about in Red Valkyries can inform the topics that we'll touch on today and just speak to the broader need for a real socialist feminist movement, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's been a theme in my work going back to the mid to late nineties, right? I've been, I was like a voice in the wilderness for a little while, especially as regards to the situation in Eastern Europe, which again is my area of focus. And so I've been thinking and writing about these issues for a really long time. It's just that I feel like recently they've become much more salient as people have quite rightly become disenchanted with liberal feminism and the sort Mm -hmm. of boss feminism and hashtag activism or whatever that is masquerading as a kind of libertary project for women and and Mm -hmm. all people, really people of all genders. But I do think that in recent years, there's been some frustration with the kind of general platitudes of liberal feminism. And that frustration goes all the way back to the middle of the of the 19th century with precisely people like Kalantai. And I've been really interested in that for a while. Yeah, absolutely. 
So my first question is about the commodification of relationships and of women's sexuality in particular, and the ways in which women have been historically forced to be economically dependent on men. So I know that this has been greatly exaggerated under capitalism, and you definitely detail that in your book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. But would you say that it's fair to say that this started to become established with the birth of private property? And, and could you speak to the, the history of all this? Sure. Okay. So I think the first thing that I want to say is as an ethnographer and as somebody who really thinks about these really broad historical questions, I don't think we can make big meta-narrative claims about when something started for all human beings and all places on the planet at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So going back to this prehistory and saying, here's the origin of patriarchy, or here's the origin of private property, or here's the origin of monogamy, or here's the origin of um, the commodification of women's sexuality. It's, 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 uh, it's problematic to say that. So I just want to put that out mm -hmm. there because I was really moved by uh, David's Wengrow and David um, Graber's book, The Dawn of Everything, which yes. I recommend to everybody. And I think they make a really clear and compelling case that any kind of meta narrative is a sort of imperialist imposition of our desire as subjects in the particular historical moment that we're living in to impose some sort of order on a past where that order may or may not exist. And when we do that imposition of order, we are trying to reach back and find historical or archeological evidence to support arguments that we're trying to put forth in the present. And I think that that's a very, very good critique. So that being said, I'm still gonna try to answer your question. Um, <laughs> but I needed to preface it because I, I always feel very sensitive to this idea of saying, here's where something started. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the thing that's really interesting about the history of like, patriarchy, really specifically this sort of utilization of women and women's bodies as a commodity that is traded or bartered or bought and sold on uh, between male members of families, so fathers, potential husbands, brothers, and so on and so forth, is that um, this is really rooted in, obviously, this practice of patriarchy, which is also can be broken down into two very clear historical and um, kind of ethnographically understandable and uh, cognizable traditions of patrilineality and patrilocality. And patrilineality is quite simply the, uh, it's like the, the, the begats in, in Genesis, like the tracing of our lineage through the male line. So, you know, every when you get married, uh, uh, people generally in most countries today still take the name of the husband, and that name is the name of his father, and that name was the name of his grandfather, and so on and so forth. And there are obviously lots of exceptions to that, but in the West, patrilineality is a tradition that goes back, you know, well back uh, into antiquity. Similarly, patrilocality is the process through which when uh, people get married, um, the woman is transferred from the family of her natal family to the family of the husband. Um, and this has all sorts of implications for the ways that we understand human history, because we can look at, for instance, Y chromosomal DNA, which tells us about the male um, genetic line. We can look at mitochondrial DNA, which tells us about the maternal line. We can look at patterns. As, as, as anthropologists, we have all sorts of ways of understanding 
societies through these twin practices of patrilineality and patrilocality. And so when we think about the commodification of women, we really have to limit our understanding of that commodification to societies which are patrilocal and patrilineal and thereby, generally speaking, patriarchal. But at the same time, there are many societies, even some that persist to this day, that are matrilocal and matrilineal. Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to understand that the particular world in which we find ourselves in today is a reflection of kind of Western, a Western imperialist imposition of patrilocal and patrilineal family forms on the rest of the world, largely during the colonial period, but it also persists to this day. And because in those two systems, women are very much, you know, when a woman takes the name of her husband, you know, for much of Western history, her own identity is kind of erased, right? Mm -hmm. When a woman leaves her natal kin and moves into the husband, the family of her new husband, she's losing all the connections, all of the support networks, everything that she once had at home to find herself basically having to navigate the family relations and obligations of her new kin. And it, it is in the context of those transfers of women that I think I think we begin to see the commodification, the real commodification of women, the fact that women become something to be traded. Now, if we if we look at Colin specifically, and and uh, and I'll and I can talk more about this later. So I'll just say just one thing: Colin very much based her arguments about the commodification of women's sexuality on reading August Babel and Friedrich Engels, who had a very particular materialist worldview about the relationship between you know, the founding of private property and um, the commodification of women. I mean, Engels says that the, the world historic defeat of the mother right is the foundation of, of private property. And I think many Marxists still you know, really feel that that is a relationship that the private property and the commodification of women or the overthrowing of matrilineal and matrilocal cultures is sort of the ground zero for our materialist analysis. And I just want to complicate that a little bit, even though I generally agree that there's a very, very good correlation between those two things. I think that we should be very suspicious of teleological narratives that try to explain everything in the world for all people at all times. Mm hmm. Yeah, thank you very much for adding that specificity and that nuance, because I also very much appreciated the dawn of everything and their critiques there. And I think you're right, it's very important to note that not all societies went this way, right? And there are, in fact, many that many that persist today that were not folded into this imperialist imposition of patrilineality and patrilocality. So, so yes, thank you so much for that. So uh, it may be more obvious to people how women's sexuality has been commodified in very problematic ways through the media, through advertising, and through the global sex trade. But could you talk about how the institution of marriage itself has also been a long means of commodifying women's sexuality? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that people, especially when we speak specifically of bourgeois monogamous marriage, 
So the idea uh, of two people or even just monogamous marriage more generally, because it precedes the bourgeois (laughs) um, era, right? If we go really, most historians tend to think of uh, socially imposed universal monogamy, which is where there are actually laws in society that prevent any particular man from having more than one legal wife. Most historians, although there, of course, there's always some debate around this, root that to the traditions, the patriarchal traditions of ancient Greece. And prior to that, and 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 still, in, you know, in many societies today, we have uh, other kinds of arrangements, both polygamous and polyandrous. We also have celibates. We also have what might be called group marriage. Um, so there are lots of family forms out there. And evolutionary anthropologists, when looking at the tradition of monogamy, they say that it's actually quite a recent invention. It's actually not representative or not natural in any way. There are a multiplicity of marriage forms, marriage institutions that human societies have created over time, often to deal with specific, you know, geographic or environmental or population pressures. So the institution of marriage itself is extremely malleable. So when we talk about monogamy, we're talking specifically about the heritage of ancient Greece. And when we're looking at ancient Greece, where teenage girls as young as 11 or 12 or 13 are being married, wed off to uh, men in other households, and the oikos was the, was the, the nuclear family in uh, ancient Greece, That institution very specifically existed to ensure the intergenerational transfer of wealth from a father to his legitimate sons, his heirs. And and so very much along with Engels and Bebel and Kalantai's analysis is the idea that private property is what underpins the marriage relationship in our society. Because men want to ensure that there that there's an orderly intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege. Now that doesn't mean that there's sexual fidelity on the part of the man. Um, that that patriarch may have relations outside of the marriage, but the strict sexual fidelity of the wife is essential in this model because her sexuality must be controlled so that she doesn't bear what's called at that time, or, you know, still sometimes an illegitimate child, a child who is not the progeny of the patriarch and thereby create an illegitimate heir. Mm -hmm. Um, We see this as well. If a man fathers a child outside of his primary relationship with his wife, those children are quote unquote illegitimate children, which means that they are not eligible to inherit any of his property or his privileges. And so I think that when we, um, when we think about the commodification of women's sexuality, we really have to go back to the origins of monogamy. Um, and you know, from the evolutionarily anthropological point of view, and also when we look at primatological studies, there's some really interesting evidence among our uh, you know distant cousins, among the primates uh, or non-human primates, so to speak, that monogamy is incredibly rare, and where monogamy does. Uh, evolve. It evolves for slightly more nefarious reasons than you would imagine. And so I do think that in human societies, and there are all sorts of um, there are all sorts of arguments about that monogamy took root in, for instance, grain-based societies, 
So there's uh, the, the work of Jane C. Scott on uh, grain states. Grain-based societies were particularly prone to monogamy as well as primogenitor, which is where the first son inherits. Because um, when you're growing grain, the division of land among multiple heirs actually reduces the productivity of that land. And so you wanted to just have one wife to, to reduce the number of, of um, legitimate heirs who might divide these parcels. And then the Catholic Church got in on this because with the institution of primogeniture, um, second sons were largely ineligible from inheriting their any of their father's wealth and privilege. And so those second sons generally tended to go uh, become priests or monks in the in the church. And if the first son, the firstborn son, failed to have a male heir um, and he died, then all of the wealth and privilege would pass to the second son. And if that son was a member of the church, would thereby pass to the church. So some historians believe that the Catholic Church, you know, we're talking about medieval times here, was very, very um keen on imposing monogamy because it was directly in its financial interest to prevent, to try to prevent the production of male heirs among the firstborn sons. And if you only had one wife, it was less likely that you would get a male heir. So there's all sorts of really interesting historical material that we could dive into when thinking about monogamy. But the key thing about monogamy and the history of monogamy, particularly in the West, is that it's this institution that really commodifies sexuality because of the need to ensure the fidelity of the wife so that you can facilitate this intergenerational transfer of wealth from one generation of men to the next generation of men, mm-hmm. excluding everyone, women, and anyone who is not in a position of privilege, right? So, so this is a uniquely... Um, sort of inegalitarian way of organizing societies. And again, as Wengro and uh, Graeber point out in The Dawn of Everything, that is by no means natural or inevitable, right? We have created inequality. We have perpetuated inequality through the way we organize the family. And there are many other ways that we could be organizing the family and organizing our societies to create greater levels of equality, but we have chosen as a society and as cultures, not to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, in a system of, of private property and, uh, you know, where there's accumulation of wealth and it's passed down through the male line, then obviously as women or as anyone who isn't privileged, right, you're in a position then where marriage is something that becomes transactional for you, right? Or it's something that you need to enter into because you've been denied, you you know, you have no means of inheriting any of this wealth. And so how else do you access that but through the the transaction of marriage, right? Exactly. I mean, so in, in, I mean, this is really key, right? Because you have to render in a society where you are trying to preserve the wealth and privilege of a very small group of men, and they're almost always men at the top, you know, very few exceptions. They're almost always men at the top. There are, you know, um, the rest of society, which includes non-privileged uh, men and, and people of all genders, as well as women, um, you have to be thinking about how are you going to ensure the fidelity of the woman? 
And in some societies, that means like sequestering them so that they can't do anything. They can't even leave the, the walls of the compound, right? All they do is, you know, have sex and have babies and have sex and have babies. And hopefully some of those are male babies so that there will be heirs who inherit um, the father's, the wealth and privilege. And so absolutely, like you, you strip women of all of their abilities to make a living from themselves and for themselves. And you also like, clearly, if that's not enough, right, then you, then you, then you lock them up and you make it so that they can't do anything other than what you want them to do, which is have your babies. Um, so that you will have the appropriate number of, you know, an heir and a spare is what they usually used to call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you told a, a sad story in your book, uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, about a friend of yours, and you were having a conversation and, um, oh no, sorry, you overheard a conversation she was having with her husband, where she was basically pleading with him um, to let her have some spending money. And uh, I, I think, you know, maybe... He, he did give her the money or something. And then uh, she said to you that, Oh, well, I'll just have sex with him later. And, uh, and kind of like square that, square that up. Right. I mean, which is really, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's awkward when you overhear things like that, because Mm -hmm. of course you want to intervene, right. Say something, but yeah. yeah. Um, But I, I I do, you know, I do think Kalantai in her, work and and quite voluminous body of of theoretical um, interventions into this topic really believed prostitution and what she called prostitution in Russian uh, and marriage to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that goes back uh, uh, to the Saint-Simonians. There were these utopian socialists in France who were also talking about marriage directly as a form of the exploitation of women. Um, and so there have particularly socialists and utop- you know, social utopian socialists and what later came to be known as um, scientific socialists, of which Kalantai would uh, count herself. Um, they they to the extent that they wrote about, again, what they called in their languages um, prostitution. I'm air quoting that right now because I realize that people don't use that term anymore. They really made it the equivalent of marriage. They saw no distinction between a woman who is permanently sold into bondage to a man through the institution, the legal institution of marriage, you often against her will with very little agency because those decisions are being made by the patriarchs and her family, often particularly for political reasons and economic reasons, but in some cases, especially for poorer families, just to get rid of the daughter. Now, and I want to, again, point out that different societies have very different practices around marriage. So we in the West generally come from what were called dowry societies, Mm -hmm. whereby parents paid husbands, families to take their daughters off their hands. (laughs) Um, And in, and, and if, Let's, for instance, a woman for some reason wanted to join the church and, and be a celibate for the rest of her life. Um, the family sometimes paid a dowry to the church to take the daughter off their hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other societies, uh, many societies which still persist to this day, there is something called the bride price, whereby the husband's family actually pays 
um, for the wife because the wife, this is usually the case in agricultural societies where women's agricultural labor and her ability to produce more agricultural laborers in the future <laughs> is very valuable. And so then there, the, the, the transfer of financial resources goes in the other direction. Um, and, and, and in some societies, uh, having a wife, buying a wife is so expensive that the um, extended kin network of, of the man has to like chip in to get him a wife. And, you know, so, so the transactions can go in different directions. Again, I think that diversity of human societies is always really important to point out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but, but it's absolutely true that um, marriage, especially from a materialist perspective, socialists have always considered marriage um, an institution, particularly bourgeois monogamous marriage, an institution which is a, a, that reflects this commodification of women's sexuality. It's just that it's a one-time permanent contract um, which was meant to last for life and to ensure the fidelity of the woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's been really fascinating reading about that, and um, I think it's it's one thing that people don't think about as much, obviously, and um, you know we don't even think about. Uh, when people, you know, take their husband's name, for example, like the history that comes behind that, even if you end up still making that choice, right? I mean, just understanding the the, the full history behind this and um, the implications of the institution, right? Is it true? Uh, I read, I believe this is true of the province of Quebec, and it's also true of Greece, that a woman can no longer take her husband's name. Oh, okay. Um, so be, precisely to fight against this... Um, this tradition of patrilineality, right? Mm-hmm. For a while, it was the case because it's not just about taking the husband's name, right? Mm-hmm. You have to understand that it's also about na- giving your children exactly your husband's name, right? So, so here the woman is the is the one who's actually, I mean, or or uh, the pregnant person is the one, but historically speaking, these were people who generally identified as cisgendered women producing the child right mm-hmm. and um and the 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 child is named after the father yeah right um that practice and there's really good studies about like how rare it is for the child to take a woman's last name um mm-hmm. a married woman's last name obviously Um, And so we are so uncritically reflective of those practices. Those practices are around us constantly and they reflect a very particular set of practices. Like when we say smash the patriarchy, right? What Mm -hmm. we really need to be saying is don't take your partner's name. (laughs) Don't name your child. Like don't always, you know, Mm -hmm. give your child the name or don't give all your children the name of your um, husband or, or of the father, you know, mix it up a little bit. Of course, the problem is logistically, it's difficult. Our mm-hmm. societies want us to be in monogamous marriages. There are literally tax breaks for people who are, you know, legally married. We have prohibitions on being in a marriage with more than one other person. Obviously, we have what's called socially imposed universal monogamy, just like the ancient Greeks did. Um, and we also, we, we perpetuate, but we don't think about like how we perpetuate these practices in our daily lives. We were talking a little bit about academia. Mm-hmm. 
true in the corporate world. This is true in uh, uh, in all sorts of sectors of the economy where you have a heterosexual couple. We have very good data. It is far more likely that if the male in that heterosexual couple gets a job, that the woman will follow him rather than the reverse. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of the persistence of patrilocality. We generally tend still, despite you know all of these years of, of trying to struggle against patriarchal capitalism, we generally tend to think of the man as the head of household. And so, the, it, and because the man, because of capitalism, because of our societies generally tend to have the higher wages, it makes sense to follow the person with the higher job. But that just re-inscribes patriarchy in our mm-hmm. everyday lives through these two very insidious practices of patrilocality and patrilineality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my partner and I are actually expecting our first child this December. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, and and I, um, yeah, I just could not stomach the idea of having children and then, yeah, you know, following these kind of patrilineal practices. And um, luckily, uh, my partner is also, you know, a, a socialist feminist. So um, we've decided that uh, that the children's last names will have my last name as their last name. And I'm, you know, I'm quite happy about that. And I know that, you know, obviously, everyone kind of makes their own decisions. But it's, um, it's something that I think is is important to at least think about. And as you said, maybe play around with it and, um, and just start to have these conversations and, and think about moving away from because, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're not going to really unearth the bedrock of patriarchy if we still hold on to all of its vestiges in this way. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and congratulations. I think that for that, that's such a, a wonderful example of like living our politics in our day to day lives. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were literally women in, you know, the 1840s and 50s in France, these utopian socialist feminists who were doing exactly that. They were trying to give their children their own uh, last names and they faced, you know, just like torrential amounts of ridicule from Mm -hmm. French society for doing so because it goes so much against the grain, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that, you know, again, it's one thing to talk about like, oh, we need to resist patriarchal capitalism, but it's another thing to actually say, okay, let's break it down. How does patriarchal capitalism infect every little nook and cranny of our daily lives and Mm -hmm. then push back in these really important ways? I mean, that's an incredible thing to model, right? Mm -hmm. When, you know, your children will have your last name, Mm -hmm. um, which of course means they'll have your father's last name because you patriarchal. I know, yeah. (laughs) Right? I know. Um, I just recently, uh, the book that I'm writing about this, I, um, of course, my, I always kept my maiden name. So even the word maiden name, right? (laughs) It tells you, I mean, it's just so, um, you can't get, you can't get away from the patrilineality, but I kept the name that was my father's name. And um, when I was writing this, this thing about patrilineality, I was so disturbed by the fact that I was perpetuating my father's identity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And William Godwin, who was um, uh, the um, 
actually the father of, of Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and many people consider him kind of the father of philosophical anarchism. He suggested that we abolish the surname, that we all use mononyms. Mm. And um, and I, I, I gently thought about um, just having the name on the cover of my book be Kristen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, but first of all, my publisher would, you know, would not hear of it, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's confusing. But then also, because my first name, um, I was actually named after my grandmother, who was Christina. But, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, the name itself refers to none other than like probably one of the biggest patriarchs of all, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least one of the, 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 the person who inspired one of the most patriarchal institutions in the world today, the Catholic Church meaning Jesus Christ. So unless I completely obviated my identity, it would be really difficult to do this. But it's still, it's worth thinking about that in our daily lives. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, when we talk about the commodification of women, uh, particularly um, in heterosexual relationships, like when you take your um, partner's name, your male partner's name, which was his father's name, you're basically, um, it's, it's a reflection of, you know, literally millennia of patriarchy, whereby the woman's identity, like you become the property of your husband. Like when you get a Christmas card or a holiday card from the, you know, the Andersons or, you know, whatever, like the, the, that means that that family unit is under the male head. And that's just perpetuating these kinds of ideas subtly about the commodification of women and the tradability of women um, into the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I was wondering if you could explain the tenets of sexual economics theory is something you went into in the book. And I find it fascinating um, and eerily similar to incel ideology as well. But I was wondering if you could go into that. Yeah. So I think that um, it was Roy Baumeister and Catherine Vose who wrote this original article about sexual economics theory in the early 2000s. What they were basically doing, and it's what economists always do in some ways, is to think about the marriage market, right? To think about the price of sex and how the price of sex or sexual access to women's bodies is determined by the laws of supply and demand. Now, one of the things that they don't explicitly state, but which they should have stated because, of course, they took it for granted, which is that this this is a particular reflection of capitalism, mm -hmm. right? The capitalism is the thing that wants to commodify everything. And so they start with what I think is a problematic assumption um, that women want sex less than men do. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's a very, you know, highly contested and many critiques of this article by social psychologists and by feminists have pointed out that uh, their whole model is premised on a fallacy. Mm -hmm. But the key thing is that they tend to believe that where the, and, and they have substantiated this. So I, I want to point out that it's not just a theory that Roy Baumeister in particular has gone to great lengths to substantiate this, that in societies where women have the ability to support themselves independently outside of a relationship with a man, whether that be her father or a husband, where women are independent, the price of sex is low, quote unquote, right? Meaning that women can have 
more sexual partners. Um, and there's no cost to them. It, this, it, it also helps that there's things like birth control and access to abortion so that when women can control their bodies and their fertility, um, and of course I'm using gendered language here because they use gendered language in the article. When women can control their bodies, when women can support themselves outside of marriage, they don't have to engage in transactional relationships with men, whether those be uh, marriage or whether those be uh, you know, casual relationships that are remunerated in some way. Where women don't have birth control, where women don't have access to reproductive rights, where women cannot make enough money to support themselves outside of marriage, the price of sex is very high, meaning marriage for them, right? Was that a woman won't, quote unquote, give it away unless she has lifetime security in exchange. Mm -hmm. And so they really treat women as weirdly rationalizing agents, but also kind of commodities at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and basically the, the implications of this argument are really weird. And, and here's where I think that you're right. And that uh, quite a lot of misogynistic uh, people have kind of glommed onto this theory to say, to, to point out that yes, in capitalist societies with high levels of inequality, women not all of them, but many of them will tend to practice a form of hypergamy, which is what social scientists call uh, marrying up, right? Marrying somebody who will um, support you, who has the ability to support you. Mm -hmm. We also know from uh, family economics, uh, Gary S. Becker has written about how inequality increases in inequality will tend to increase poly polygamy so that women make the rational decision to have just a piece of a wealthier man's pie, so to speak, like mm -hmm. they'll be willing to share with multiple wives a bigger pie rather than having one man to herself who has a very small pie, so to speak. So, so we know that inequality, right? It's very clear that inequality is, is, what, is what's driving this. But what happens with these... Um, misogynists on the internet, what you called incels, right, is that rather than blaming capitalism, rather than blaming inequality, rather than blaming the desire for a few men, patriarchal leaders at the very top of society to hoard as many resources as they can to themselves, they blame women. Mm -hmm. they, they put the blame on the women themselves. And I think sexual economics theory actually doesn't doesn't blame women at all. It just shows that in a market economy, people are going to respond to market signals. And one of the things that gets commodified under capitalism, like everything else that gets commodified under capitalism, is sexuality. And so why would we think, or this is their, you know, their words, why would we think for a second that the forces of capitalism wouldn't in Affect our private lives the way that it, it infects everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is it is definitely perverse the way that that gets spun in these kind of really misogynist groups, um, because uh, you know, as you said, this 
really wouldn't exist outside of the logic of capitalism and I guess, you know, capitalist patriarchy in particular. Um, but it's also just, it's also just interesting because this also wouldn't happen if, if, I, I mean, obviously this isn't to blame men or whatever, but you know, like if you weren't viewing women as commodities, then it, you know, like you're the, the other side, the buyer is also perpetuating that system as much as like the seller, right? In in this kind of quote unquote rational economic exchange under these terrible oppressive conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, here's the thing, right, about sexual economics theory. I mean, I don't think it, the intention of this was, I don't think their intention was to do this. But when I first stumbled upon that article, right, I immediately thought, oh my God, they've they've been reading angles. They've been reading comics, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? I don't think they were, right? I think yeah. that they, they just happened to describe independent, like exactly what Colin Ty said, how sexual relations work out in um in a capitalist society, they just, they literally just sort of owned up to that and said, yeah, that's how it works. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they even doubled down. Right. As I said, they provided evidence. They actually went and they looked, they did studies to show that in society, like in Denmark, right. Societies where women have the ability to support themselves. There are all sorts of downstream ramifications about how, um, you know, like the age of, uh, of first sex for women, how many sexual partners women have, uh, you know, and so like women are just much freer sexually and they choose their partners based on attraction and affection and, um, and shared interest, you know, go think about it rather than in societies where women have no opportunities to support themselves, where they have no access to birth control, where they have limited access to reprodu reproductive rights or none whatsoever, then of course, those women are strategically trying to choose their partners on the basis of whether those partners can provide for them, which first of all, puts an incredible amount of pressure on men, because that means exactly what sexual economics theory points out is that men who can't be providers are going to be shut out of this market. And there are good, again, social scientific studies showing that that happens in the United States. But again, if we go and we look at some other cultures where there's more egalitarianism, and this is why, by the way, I think that looking at Eastern European countries prior to 89 or 91 is so relevant here, is that the emancipation of women did not necessarily result in increasing misogyny, mm -hmm. right? Because men actually saw that having women able to support themselves took pressure off of them from having to, to ha for, from having their sole worth and value being determined by whether or not they could provide for a partner and the family. Mm -hmm. and, and so there, there are benefits to everybody. I mean, I don't think I need to tell you this from living in a more egalitarian society. <laughs> right? for sure. But I think that the thing is, is that like we need you know, there, there's just like asserting, okay, socialism would be better, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think many people do that, but like really digging in and saying why and how, and in some ways, even though I find sexual economics theory, like I said, it's based on a fallacy and it's somewhat problematic in so many ways, it gives us a tool to understand how people, even if they're not thinking you know, explicitly about their sexual lives this way, they're thinking about it implicitly that they exist on a market. And if you live in a capitalist society, especially a brutally capitalist society, as we do in North America, more so, I think, in the United States than anywhere else, 
of course, we're going to think of everything as a market because we have been dehumanized by that market. We are all dehumanized. There's mm -hmm. like a, a universal dehumanization. However, that doesn't mean that some people are more dehumanized, right? There's a hierarchy of dehumanization. Some people have more privileges than others. Mm -hmm. But I think the dehumanizing impulse of capitalism is universal. It just affects some people much more deeply than others. Mm -hmm. Nobody is really left unscathed, I would say. Yeah, and that definitely ties into my next question about the implications of the commodification of sex for the psyches and well-being of both parties, buyer and seller, because I think that it can feel fairly obvious that, you know, the seller in the transaction could be oppressed or, you know, forced to make certain decisions under these oppressive conditions. But I think the buyer is also quite dehumanized and, you know, just stripped of their humanity and uh, becomes kind of like a purse or a pocketbook in this transaction, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, the, again, broadly speaking, I think, you know, if you Let's think about a, a friendship, because this is something that I've written a lot about, right? And I think you actually had a, a, a YouTube episode about not commodifying your passions, like the side yeah. hustle, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that there's something that happens, like when you start to charge money for something that you used to give away for free. And again, again behavioral economists have done a lot of really interesting um studies about altruism, for instance. And I think like, so there's this website, Rent a Friend, where mm -hmm. you can, you can, you know, sign up and, you know, go, you get a certain amount of money for visiting with old people, or you get a certain amount of money for going to an art museum, or, you know, it's, it's explicitly meant to be a kind of platonic, friendly transaction. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's interesting that friendship or, or this sort of really kind of platonic companionship is now is the, the market is dragging that into it right, right? So yeah the way that we use words like I'm gonna go and spend time with my daughter I mm -hmm. never say spend time I always say share time because I think language needs to be precise and I'm not spending anything I'm doing something that I want to do right and and then I'm trying, I'm trying to claw back from the market as much. And I think this is the universal advice that I have for people, which is that there are many things that the market sees as valuable commodities. That's what capitalism is best at. Looking around and seeing what parts of our lives have not yet been commodified and which can be commodified in a for-profit application in a for-profit corporation in some way that's going to generate income for somebody who owns the means of those the means of that production right so like dating going out on a date you know other than the cost of the date like it wasn't being mediated by a for-profit application on your phone right yeah. Who's, and if you think about tinder right tinder is it, it has no interest whatsoever in um you finding a stable, happy partner because then they lose your eyeballs from their app. They lose yeah. interaction, right? So the whole business model is meant to keep us away from the things that many people go to Tinder to seek in the first place. It's bizarre, right? That people, mm -hmm. um, I'm not, you know, I'm saying fine, do whatever you want, but think about the ways in which parts of our lives have been marketized. And in any transaction, in anything 
that used to be outside of the market or partially outside of the market or that we wish to remain outside of the market. The philosopher um, Sandel at Harvard has a wonderful book about uh, mark where markets should not go, right? Um, when we start to commodify those things, like our hobbies, like our passions, like our friendships, it strips away not only some of the authenticity, but it also like it becomes a job. Yeah. It becomes something that we are now doing because we are members of a precarious reserve army of labor, right? That we are because we are alienated from our labor and we have to sell our labor on a market in order to meet our basic you know, our basic needs, because we don't have any kind of social safety nets, particularly, again, I think in the United States. So, so both, so all parties in all of this. Now, again, I think there are hierarchies here. Some people feel this more deeply. Mm -hmm. There's greater or lesser levels of dehumanization, depending on where you are in this transaction, but the transaction itself is the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. The transaction itself is where we have to be focusing. Like we want to de-transactionalize as much of our detransactionalize as much of our lives as possible. Because first of all, we prevent the expansion of capital into our private lives, but we can also harm capital in that way, right? Because capital wants to own every that's this whole hu hustle culture, right? Or um, there was a wonderful article about workism, right? People who see their, all of their identity, everything is about work. Every moment of every day needs to be commodified. Like so much of what we are arguing for when we argue for a more just, equitable, sustainable, and humane society is reducing the way in which we are alienated and commodified by the machinations of the market. Absolutely. Yes to everything that you just said. And uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of circling back to this at the end and really ending on a note of liberation and, and thinking through how do we actually do that? Like, how do we actually decommodify our relationships? Right. Um, but before that, I wanted to um, actually just dig into something that I find absolutely fascinating um, as somebody who I, I have a whole channel where we do sex dreams and we talk about uh, sexual politics and, you know, the orgasm gap has definitely <laughs> come up. Uh, a few times on that channel. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, how the struggles women face under capitalism affect their enjoyment of sex, and particularly, how, you know, this orgasm gap between men and women in hetero relationships. How, in in your research, have you found that that differs between capitalist and socialist societies? Right. So I can answer this very briefly, and then basically refer readers to why women had better sex. Yes. yes. Arguments for economic independence, because that's really those two chapters on sexuality are precisely answering this question. So I rely on studies that were done after the collapse of communism in 98 and sorry, in 89 and 91. And particularly studies that were done looking at the differences between the orgasm rate, quite specifically between East German and West German women in heterosexual relationships. And the key thing is that A, this data is self-reported, but B, it was this study was done multiple times asking different versions of the question. So in one of the questionnaires, it was, you know, did your last sexual encounter leave you feeling satisfied? 
which is pretty specifically about like, did you have an orgasm? In others, it was, did you feel happy after the last time you had sex? So they, and, and in some cases it was like, you know, did you, um, I can't remember how they phrased it euphemistically, but the key thing is that consistently what they found was that women in the Eastern part of Germany, what had been the GDR, had been a socialist society for 40 years, had higher rates of orgasm, self-reported orgasms than in the West. And the question was, why? Mm -hmm. And a lot of social science ink has been spilled on this. But in other countries, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, not in all former socialist countries. And that's really important because I got a lot of people from Romania who are, you know, constantly attacking me for um, saying that they had better sex under socialism. Romania was awful. And I say that in the book. Um, the, the Romanian state, you know, outlawed abortion, outlawed birth control, basically nationalized women's wombs. It was a terrible place to be a woman from that perspective. So I just want to put that out there. This is not a universal, but to the extent that there were countries that were committed to women's emancipation. And again, I go through this whole argument in great detail in the book. The ability of women to support themselves independent of a relationship meant that they chose their partners on the basis of attraction, affection, and shared mutual interests. And when those relationships became abusive or unpleasant or unsatisfying in some other way, women could leave. So women were never trapped in relationships in which they were unhappy because they had the independent means to leave them. That is not, and not to mention that they had health insurance, right? Um, so, so many things that women depend on their male partners in heterosexual relationships for in a country like the United States did not apply in uh, the socialist countries. And when you, and you can test this hypothesis precisely by looking at the German case, because these are basically Germans, culturally extremely similar prior to the Second World War, that were divided by the Berlin Wall, by the Cold War. And so the really only big difference between them was the social economic system. And lo and behold, it seems that we have pretty good evidence, not only there, but in places like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland, that we, and Yugoslavia, I would argue, also falls into this that when women have economic independence and have the ability to make decisions about their own lives, the quality of their relationships with men improves mm -hmm. sexually and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just a major, major plug for the book. I found those sections to be absolutely fascinating because uh, you know, just, just having the empirical data, really, um, to show that this isn't just theory and it makes so much sense. And then you really go into what happened uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and how a lot of these women then ended up losing their freedoms and uh, ended up in, you know, much less fulfilling relationships, just like their capitalist counterparts, which, again, is is quite sad, but um, but I think really makes sense, right? Absolutely, because one, I mean, one of the you know that's the key thing. Once those uh, states, you know, the the childcare went away, the elder care went away, the social safety nets were completely dismantled. You know, unemployment started to increase. 
There were all sorts of structural things, the privatization of everything, structural things that happened that basically increased women's economic dependence on men. And as women, you know, again, I think it's interesting because this comes back to the sexual economics theory. As women found themselves in more and more precarious economic circumstances, it's not at all surprising, as the theory predicts, that in a capitalist society, the commodification of something that had been decommodified under socialism becomes recommodified under capitalism. And that's precisely what Colin Ty predicted. That's precisely what Babel predicted in 1879 in his book, Women Under Socialism. That's precisely what Engels was writing about. So I think that it's absolutely important to point out that this is not just in the realm of theory. We have very good, well, some might argue about the quality of the empirical evidence, but we have a good amount of you know, well thought out and tested empirical evidence, empirical tests that have been done to show, I mean, all, it's always going to be difficult when you're talking about human relationships, but to the extent that you can, and again, I recognize the shortcomings of self-reported data, but to the extent that you can, I think that we have found multiple data points that point out that when people are in more egalitarian relationships, they, they have literally better sex. They literally have uh, more harmonious relationships between the two of them. Absolutely. And and again, it, it makes perfect sense. Like, how can you really be present and vulnerable and, and open enough to fully enjoy an experience if you feel like it's something that's just completely transactional for you or um, something that you feel like you need to do maybe just under the stress of and duress of of living under a system where you've been stripped of the means of production and stripped of the means of accumulating any wealth at all. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. And 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 the other thing is, is and let's just you know point out that if you're tired all the time, if you're exhausted, if you come home at the end of the day and you barely have an iota of energy left because your job or your side hustle or your you know, whatever it is that you're doing to, to pay for your means of sustenance are depleting you, right? How are you going to there, therefore then even, you know, be there? It's show up in any relationship, right? And we're not just talking about romantic relationships for your friends, for, for, for you know, people, your neighbors, for your activist colleagues, you know, for all of the causes that we want to contribute to, we get depleted. And that depletion is part and parcel of capitalism. And so when we're depleted in that way, we, we turn around and we want to look for a quick fix. We want to do something that is going to like meet our most basic needs with the least amount of effort. And, and it is dehumanizing and it is commoditizing. And I think that what looking at these socialist uh, countries shows is that, well, Clearly, they were not in any way a paradise, and I don't want to sugarcoat it or, or, or say that you know there was that was some kind of perfect society. There were lots of things that went wrong, but even in a country like Romania, people miss the time and the sociality that they had prior to '89 because people weren't as stressed about meeting their basic needs because those basic needs were being guaranteed by the state. Now it was quite admittedly an oppressive state, especially in places like Romania. There's no doubt about that. But there's a kind of freedom and liberation that comes from not worrying about whether or not you're going to have enough to eat tomorrow or whether you're going to be able to see a doctor if you get sick 
or to worry about your children's education if you have them. And that's a kind of freedom that we don't talk enough about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think David Harvey says that freedom under capitalism is basically just the freedom to produce and consume. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel that as somebody who, you know, I've I've experienced chronic illness, especially in the academy and just overwork, burnout, all of that. And yeah, I mean, it's it's completely difficult, if not impossible, to maintain any kind of relationships under those kinds of circumstances. And um, I know you uh, spoke on Rev Left Radio about this, and we've been talking a bit about how you've been experiencing long COVID. And, you know, same same thing. It's like our society, our capitalist society, just does not allow for people to have those kinds of experiences. It's just it's just right back to normal, right? And and yeah, how do you how do you maintain your work life balance or your relationships when you're dealing with all of that, right? So. We internalize right this narrative. I mean, I think this is especially true in academia. This this narrative that we have to be on all the time. Yeah, and at, you know any admission of of weakness or you know or because um, I mean for me especially with the longer COVID it feels like a weakness to me. Like my brain doesn't feel as literally as strong as it used to be. I'm struggling sometimes with putting sentences together. I have to stand up in front of a classroom full of students and actually, you know, cover material. And I sometimes I just find myself exhausted by that. And Mm -hmm. I don't get a break. I can't cancel classes. If I got COVID and I was sick, my university would expect me probably to teach on Zoom. You know, I would not. And I would have to do the class prep anyway. Right? So yeah. it's like and, and, and then I've got a pile right now. I've got a pile of papers that I got to grade and they're not going to grade themselves. And, and, and it doesn't matter. Right. We are living in a society where human time and attention and um affect our commodities and we are self-commodifying in many like it, it is true that it's in the water around us but we also do it to ourselves and I think that that's a really important point that I try to talk about in that book and then I'm talking about in my next book is the ways in which we have to liberate ourselves from that language and that way of thinking, because that sometimes is also really hard to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty dystopian when you actually consider all of this. But I guess on that note, uh, let's move on to ending on, on a note of liberation. So you have an excellent podcast, which covers the work of Alexandra Kollontai. So for anyone who is not familiar, could you talk about who Kollontai was and why you found her work so compelling when thinking through the issues that we've spoken about today? Yeah, so Alexander Kalantai was a a Russian, she eventually became a Bolshevik, and she was the first commissar of social welfare after the revolution in 1917. And then later, she was also the head of the Genotel, which was the women's section of the Communist Party. And she was really the architect of a lot of policies which were implemented in the Soviet Union between 1917 and 1926, that really attempted to liberate women um, in the context of building a new socialist society. And she was very much a a critic of bourgeois monogamous marriage, of the traditional family, of the Russian Orthodox Church. She made an incredible number of enemies. 
But she was also a very pro prolific writer. Uh, she had a long revolutionary career prior to the revolution. She was a, briefly a pacifist. She traveled and lectured all over the world. She was in and out of jail. She is a really kind of an incredible figure. And she ended up living a quite long life and, and served as the ambassador to Norway, Mexico, and then for much of her life in Sweden, and including the Second World War, twice nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, and then sort of died in the Soviet Union in 1952, uh, just shy of her 80th birthday, uh, having had a, a quite illustrious career and then being given the time to write uh, very extensive memoirs. And so there's an incredible amount of material about her and by her. And I am fascinated by her because she's really the first person to do a Marxist materialist analysis of love of human relationships. And to me, and what I try to do on the podcast is to really dig down deep into her own writing. I try to give context for that writing. I try to give a little bit of background information about who she was and who she was talking to, with whom she was in conversation, both within the Soviet Union and abroad, to try to actually excavate some of the really important insights that Kalantai, that she had about our private lives and the way that capitalism is uniquely implicated in the commodification of affect and the commodification of human relationships and how we would have to transform our private lives as much as we need to transform the public sphere, right? So revolutionary leaders like Lenin really focused on reimagining the relations of production and, you know, basically making these sweeping administrative decrees that changed property relations almost overnight. But when it came to changing the family, he was actually very, very hesitant. He believed that this was like something for a later time. It wasn't important. Whereas Kalantai made this argument, which I still believes holds, still believe holds true to this day, which is that you cannot change the world unless you change the family. Like our political and economic structures, especially in the capitalist West, are very deeply dependent on the way, the reproductive labor that people do in the home. Mm -hmm. And she is one of the first theorists to really dig deep into the relationship between our private family lives, the way that we organize reproductive labor in the home, and how that perpetuates capitalist exploitation in the wider public sphere. Yeah, and that is so, so incredibly important. Um, so yeah, the, the podcast is called AK-47, Selections from the Works of Alexandra Kollontai. So I will link that below for everyone to check out. Um, I also love that you often have your daughter on to have conversations uh, about Kollontai's works. I just, I find it, I love it. Um, your daughter's great. And uh, I, yeah, I just love hearing kind of like, you know, the youth. Yeah, <laughs> so you know, interested. It's, it, I'm actually going to try to... Um, recruit her for one more. I haven't done a podcast in the last, I think, three months because I've been struggling with the COVID and the mm -hmm. overwork. Uh, and I've just, you know, I've just had a hard time, you know, processing everything. And, and I've, I've had a lot of other deadlines and things that I've been dealing with. But I do think that it is really productive to have these intergenerational conversations and mm -hmm. and modeling that with my daughter who's always game I mean she's such a great sport about <laughs> the 
right? Because I'm like, please, will you do another podcast? (laughs) Because everybody really likes those, those episodes, you know, and she just Mm -hmm. comes with, you know, a different take, you know, she is really seeing it from a kind of Gen Z perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really useful. But I also think it's really useful to have more dialogue across generations, because that's Mm -hmm. something that we don't often think can be productive, right? And and a lot of the name calling that goes on on social media is is often, I see it, I can kind of see it as an intergenerational divide around Mm -hmm. things like language and terminology and sort of conceptual divisions in the way that like people who are kind of like basically out of date who don't speak internet um, they don't know, they're not necessarily bad people, but they just don't really understand the terminology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and or, or the kinds of stakes of some of the discussions that are going on. And unfortunately, a lot of younger people, I think, are impatient with that. And they don't want to take the time to, um, to educate, like, upwards. But of course, they shouldn't have to, right? We should take some responsibility for educating ourselves. But nevertheless, I think that having that conversation, like with my daughter, I always find it like I always learn things. I always mm-hmm. find that I'm, I'm opening, you know, my eyes, my eyes are being opened in a way that um, had I not just taken the time to sit with her for an hour. I mean, I see her often, but sitting for an hour and just saying, hey, let's talk about like sexual politics on campus in 2022. Mm-hmm. What's how is that related to the kinds of things that Colin Ty was writing about in 1922? And that's always really fun because she's read enough Kalantai and she's listened to enough of my podcasts. <laughs> she's really conversant in that, but she can really apply it to her own life and her own life. I almost said own lives. She only has one, but maybe she has multiple. And I just don't. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and it's yeah. just like an hour. Like my brain just starts to go woo low back. Yeah. <laughs> no, I feel that. I feel that. But but no, I, I think it's it is so important, and I really appreciate the intergenerational approach. And I think that. Um, it goes both ways, as you said, but also I think it's also really important because, um, especially in kind of the feminist tradition, as as you know, with all of these socialist feminists um, who were putting forward these theories, um, you know, in the previous century, uh, it, you know, we're having debates today where these insights are important and valuable, and I think that a lot of younger people today aren't necessarily aware that a lot of the debates that we're having are not new, right? And they've we already have theory on this. We already have a tradition on this. And so it's, it's really good to, um, you know, kind of pass down that tradition while also kind of learning, um, you know, the new issues and, and the new perspectives from, from younger people as well. So, yeah, I just, I think that's, that's amazing. We shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel, like every yeah. generation, right? I mean, you know, patriarchs are really, really good at ensuring the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege. And part of that privilege is knowledge. Yeah. And it turns out that, you know, we have just not been very good socialists. I mean, I think it's really important to, to, to you know, and, I, and, and by the way, you know, when people do listen to my podcast and I sometimes get emails that are forwarded to me about you know, reactions and things like that. I, I, I find it, you know, so many young people and it's not just in the United States. I I have listeners in other countries as well who just say, I can't believe that somebody wrote about this a hundred years ago. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe how relevant this text from 1921 or, you know, is to my life right now Mm -hmm. and how frustrating it is for people to, to not have, I mean, and again, all of this is publicly available 
it's, you know, all of, uh, not all of her work, her work is so voluminous. It wouldn't, you know, probably break the internet. I know it won't break the internet. <laughs> it's a lot. And it, a lot of it has not been translated into English, but quite a bit of it is available at Marxist.org if you're looking for a good sort of solid repository. But there are also, I believe that um, Liza Featherstone has also just come out or is about to come out with an edited volume of Colin Ty's works. And I would definitely encourage people to get that book because it's really nice to have not only the text, but then also some commentary, which is what I've been trying to do as well on the podcast. But the idea really is to say, yeah, of course, there's going to be a lot of things that are totally irrelevant to us because Kalantai was living in the very early revolutionary, pre and post-revolutionary period in Russia. So there are lots of things that are going to be very different, clearly, but there are things that we can learn and particularly some of these more conceptual things her, co her concepts of comradely love, her concepts of, you know, immersing the family in a wider network of comrades and colleagues and friends, you know, to, to, to reduce the, 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 the freighting of our relationships with all of the baggage of society, right? Like she thinks that if we were to, um, if we lived in a more equitable society, then our, and, and our the home wasn't the place where all of the social reproductive labor was done, we could basically decouple our romantic lives from the work of social reproduction of the next generation. And then that would make every, it would make it better for everybody, right? By socializing some of that labor. Those are conversations that we're all having right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's so valuable to not only go back and see what Alexandra Kalantai wrote about, but because she was the commissar of social welfare, she actually had the power to implement policies that created expanded massive numbers of kindergartens and creches and public cafeterias and public laundries. And she abolished the category of illegitimate children and liberalized divorce. They um, legalized abortion in 1920. There were so many things that were happening in that really early period of the Soviet Union that we could learn from because some of them didn't work out so well and some of them did. And so I think that it's really a shame that we're not having more of these conversations. But, you know, um, I think we're, at, we're, we're, it's a good start, right? We're, we're doing the best that we can and more and more people, I think Colin Ty kind of enjoyed a little bit of internet celebrity. I don't know about a, six, seven months ago. I don't know. There were a couple of things that were going on that were really valuable. Uh, Rev Left Radio asked me to do a whole podcast about her, which I thought was wonderful because I really got to kind of stretch out and talk about Kalantai and how important I think she is as a figure. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm hoping that lots of people will get excited and will, you know, go and read those texts in their original, because I'm sure there are lots of things that are relevant to younger people's lives that I just don't see because I'm, you know, I'm Gen X and I have a different perspective. So mm -hmm. those intergenerational conversations are just absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess, again, kind of on that note of, uh, you know, all of the, the insights and the successes that Kalantai has had, um, I wanted to end on a note of liberation. So um, drawing on these insights in your own research and experience, um, how can we work to, to decommodify our relationships as we struggle against the broader forces of capitalism? Yeah, so I would say the most important thing is to reclaim your time, your emotions, your affections and your attentions. 
you know, this is not something that, um, you know, other people have not said before. I mean, clearly there are all these books like Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, you know, Resisting the Attention Economy. There's uh, Nicholas Klar has this book about the shallows, what the internet is doing to our brain. There are all sorts of people that are trying to convince us that our lives would be much better off if we sort of signed off, right? But they're very rarely talking about these underlying, they're talking about the the addictive nature of the internet, but they're not necessarily talking about capitalism, about the ways in which capitalism wants to constantly reach its tentacles into into our emotions, our affections, our attentions, our relationships. And so one of the most liberatory things I think we can do is like, hang out with our friends for long periods of time on weekends or whenever we have the time to share with others, to discuss, to walk, to to do things that are just outside of the market. To sleep is a wonderful anti-capitalist thing. You know, it is because every moment, Jonathan Crary has this wonderful book called 24-7, where he talks that every moment that you are in your bed with your eyes closed or just doing nothing, right? The There are these young Chinese that have this, um, um, I think they're Chinese millennials, they're talking about the lying flat movement, right? Which is do doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Or going out and just sharing time with people, your 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 loved ones, but also you know just a wider network of of, of forging wider networks of lateral relationships that will of people who can love and support you and in your political work, where you feel recharged by them and you're recharging them, and all of this is happening outside of the framework of the market. We know, right, there's this wonderful longitudinal study that has been done at Harvard for the last 75 or something years, um, where they've traced these uh, people over generations, and then they included their wives, they've included some of their children. And this is an amazingly robust longitudinal data set. And the key finding, I think there's a TED talk about this by uh, Robert Waldinger. The key finding is that what people value most in life is their relationships to others, to mm-hmm. other people. And I would say from a, from a, a, a liberatory, you know, to, to seek liberation, I very much agree with Kalantai that as much as we need to transform the structures of society so that we can build a better future for everybody, if you know the planet survives that long, we can't do that without concomitantly reimagining our private lives. Mm-hmm. And that means in the bedroom, that means in the kitchen, that means in our homes, in our neighborhoods. It means starting small and reverberating out. And so everybody who's listening, you know, I think, you know, grab a bottle of wine or your tipple of choice and find a friend, uh, uh, spend some time with your partner, call your mom, call somebody who you haven't talked to for a really long time that you just want to catch up with and allow yourself the real pleasure of immersing yourself in a human relationship in a non-transactional way. Mm-hmm. That's where it all starts. And the, the more of us that feel loved and supported in a broader network of 
lateral relationships, the more energized we will be to do the really important political work that it's going to be required to create a more just, equitable, and sustainable future. Yeah, completely. And and I think it really pushes back against the alienation that we're all feeling under capitalism. And I know for a lot of people, you know, if you're working multiple jobs and you're feeling ill, it can feel really, you know, difficult or perhaps daunting to to make the time or to find the time. But as you said, you know, um, baby steps start small. And I think any time that you can reclaim for, from capital is a win, right? Everybody, if everybody reclaims time from capital, I mean, there, this is happening, right? You, you yeah. there are these articles about quote unquote, quiet quitting, right? Where mm-hmm. yeah. only now doing what their jobs require of them and yeah. not more, right? I think it's happening organically. And all mm-hmm. I'm saying is that for those of us who are concerned about the persistence of patriarchal capitalism, we should make this happen intentionally mm-hmm. for ourselves and for the people in our broader lateral networks, right? Our relationship networks. We can create opportunities for sociality, opportunities for connection, opportunities for sharing, opportunities for thinking together about the world in these non-transactional ways. And so it's about intentionality. And it's also about recognizing that it is political work to care for other people, that it is political work to attend to your relationships, that it is political work to sleep sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, as you said, people who have multiple jobs or dealing with disability, have they have such precious limited time. And um, if they are activists, and I've seen this among many of my younger colleagues, you know, so many activists burn out because yeah. they're lose the ability to 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 keep the the level of effort required for this kind of work. And so there is, you know, and I'm speaking, I am saying this as somebody who is struggling with long COVID, there is something to be said about not, I hate the word self-care, um, but in Red Valkyries, I use the word repose, which is finding ways to just step back and take a moment to take stock of what's happening in your life and the ways you are showing up or not showing up from the pe- for the people who need you. And that includes yourself. Yeah, I think that's very well said and very good advice. So thank you so much. Um, this was such a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited to release this. I know everyone's going to really love it. Um, so before you go, would you like to just shout out quickly um, where people can find you and your workout? And I'll certainly add these links to the description box below as well. Great. So I don't actually have much of a social media presence. Right. Uh, you have a website, uh, www.kristengodsey.com. It's just my name. And most recently, and somewhat surprisingly, I, I actually have a TikTok channel. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Uh, so it's, it's, it's TikTok at Kristen Godsey. Um, and it was initially created by a student of mine who did a fantastic job of, during the pandemic, of producing videos about what she called, quote unquote, bad bitches of the revolution. Um, (laughs) It's an intersectional channel with biographies of socialist feminists in different countries. 
uh, and from different traditions. And um, she did a great video on, on Kalantai. There are some wonderful videos about lesser known women. Um, but then she graduated and it just sat there for a long time. And I did nothing because I know nothing about social media. Um, but then just, I think last week, um, I, uh, Verso Books, which was the publisher of Red Valkyries. Uh, I'm sure many people know Verso Books. They have a great mm -hmm. book club, which I highly recommend. Asked me to post some videos that they, that they had made to this channel. And so I found myself in the very awkward and un- um, and difficult, I would say, an uncomfortable position of, of having to navigate TikTok for the first time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, it's there now. Uh, I have it as a channel. I don't know if I, I don't know what I'll do with it, but if anybody is interested in watching these wonderful videos that were put together by my former student, I, I recommend they, they check it out. And then there are a couple of videos of me talking about Red Valkyries there. Amazing. Well, I will definitely check that out. That sounds incredible. Um, so yeah, just thank you again. This is such an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak about all of this with me and um, very much looking forward to your next book. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to, to get to talk about all this. As you can tell, I'm really passionate about it. I hope I didn't waffle on too long and boring. No, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks.